dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? And taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold, and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot, and seeks out a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its habitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing." Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open this text that you would show us yourself in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Children, how many of you know the song, My God is So Big? Anybody know that song? You know, my God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. Okay, I'm glad to see that some of you know it. I don't know if all of your parents know it too. 
But that's what this sermon is going to be about. So maybe uh, after the service or in the car ride home, you could just check and make sure your parents know that song, just in case they weren't paying attention during the sermon so they can, you know, get what this passage is all about. Last time I preached, we looked at the beginning of this chapter, and we talked about there's these various voices in the chapter, shouting from one to another and out into all the world, a single message, behold your God. That was the message that the voices were shouting. So it makes sense that as the passage continues today, the verses we'll read show us this God. They give us a description of who God is. We'll see that in three points today. First, who God is. Second, who God is not. And third, what difference does it make for us? So we'll see who God is, who God is not, and what difference does that make for us? So the first point, who God is. As uh, David mentioned, these chapters are famous as a statement about the nature of God, perhaps one of the highest statements in the whole Old Testament. So there's a lot here, but let's, let's just dig in. First of all, I hope you get a sense of how big God is from this text. Uh, theologians call this God's immensity. By the way, kids, how big is God? Ever thought about this? Is, is God as big as your big brother? Is God as big as your father? Who's bigger, God or a dump truck? What about a whale? God's bigger than everything. In fact, God's so big that there's no limits. He's infinitely large. He's not contained by space. Well, Isaiah paints this for us in colorful images, doesn't he? Verse 12 says, he is, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? These actually aren't just hypothetical questions. They're, they're describing the creation of the world, how God proportioned the measures of different substances and elements to create a harmonious world. And they're saying that that was as easy for God as when you mix flour and sugar in the kitchen to bake something. Verse 15 says that all the nations in the coastlands, the vast geography of the earth, are like so much dust or a drop in the bucket compared to God. Verse 22 says that a God, as God sits in government over the earth, all the inhabitants are like little grasshoppers hopping around. Constructing the vast vault of the sky was as simple as hanging up a curtain or putting up a tent for God. So, and, and, uh, so we get the sense of how big God is. And God's creation of the earth, it doesn't just demonstrate how big he is, it also demonstrates how powerful he is. There's nothing my God cannot do, as the song says. Verse 26 talks about the greatness of his might, how he is strong in power. And verse 28 reminds us, he does not faint or grow weary. God is, never gets tired, his power is infinite. Verse 28 even mentions his eternity. The Lord is the everlasting God. He endures age after age without ever changing. 
Then this passage also tells us about God's wisdom, His knowledge. Verse 13 says, Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Verse 12 had told us that God measured out the creation, but God's own Spirit is never measured. God measures, but He is not measured. Nobody can come to God and tell Him, you know, I think you went a little too far over here. Um, this is good work, but is, it, is this really the right wise balance on this issue? Nobody can tell God that. Verse 14 says, Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? It's, it's probably worth noting that if you read other ancient creation myths, the gods that create the world in those stories often do need help and go to other gods to seek wisdom from them. But not the true God. He creates without a helper, without an advisor, simply out of his own infinite knowledge. Verse 28 adds, his understanding is unsearchable. It's not only that we can't give God advice, but even once he's done something, we can't look at it and understand the depth of his wisdom. Uh, No matter how far our researches might travel into God's knowledge, they'll never come out on the other side. Then there's also this comment in verse 16 about sacrifice. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. Of course, Israel was supposed to bring God's sacrifices, right? Although, after the destruction of the temple, when many of people of Israel would have heard this passage, they may have been distressed that they weren't able to do so. And part of the significance of a sacrifice is is you bring something that's yours, and you bring it to the sanctuary, and you, you give it to God. But this passage, and some others in the Old Testament, caution us against taking that too literally, as if God really needed that gift. Other Nations believed that the gods ate the food that people provided for them, but that wasn't the case in Israel. Indeed, if you burned all the cows from Lebanon's rich pasture lands on all of the wood from the famous cedars of Lebanon, it wouldn't make a difference to God. It wouldn't satisfy any of his needs because he doesn't have any. The sacrifice then must be for the worshippers' benefit to Uh, allow them to express their devotion to God and to teach them about God and point them forward to what he was going to do in Jesus. Among all these images of God's greatness, we have a, a slightly more challenging philosophical statement in verse 17. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. This verse says that compared to God, the nations are as nothing, or we could translate like nothing. What does that mean? Well, this is actually the subject of my dissertation topic, but I'll try to be brief here. It's not saying the nations don't exist in the ordinary way that you didn't exist before you were born. Um, Rather, it's a statement of relative non-existence. Compared to God, it is like the nations don't exist. God's existence and our existence are on different levels, and there's such a great distance between them that compared to the real and ultimate way in which God exists, it's as if we didn't exist at all. All the aspects of human existence, human greatness, human power, human wisdom, they might seem very real to us, but compared to God, they're thin and insubstantial. 
They might look big, but against the background of God, they're as small as grasshoppers. They might seem weighty and important, but compared to God, they're like the dust on the scales or the chaff blown in the wind. If you're paying attention, you'll realize that I've been explaining this difficult metaphor to you just by giving you more metaphors. And yeah, I mean, it's a profound and mysterious teaching. It's, it's hard to do much better than that. Um, so I'll, I'll leave it there for now. You might have to crack open Thomas Aquinas to, to get much further into this. I'll just, I'll just leave you with, with the mystery. It does have one important consequence, though. And that's in the immediately following verse, verse 18. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? And we have it again in verse 25. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? These rhetorical questions expect the answer, no one. Nobody can be compared to God or likened to him. God's not like King Kong. You know King Kong, right? King Kong is basically a gorilla. He's just really big, like maybe a gorilla scaled up like five times or ten times. That's about all there is to King Kong. But with God, we can't point at something in the world and say, God is just like that, only magnified to bigger proportions. God's not simply the greatest object in the world. He is so far transcendent above the world that, strictly speaking, it isn't even possible to compare anything in the world to him. Now, you might have an objection at this point. Doesn't the Bible often compare God to created things? After all, doesn't it say that humans are in the image and likeness of God? Um, So then God could be compared to something after all. And in fact, the metaphors in this passage almost make God seem like a human being a couple times. I mean, very vaguely, but they talk about his hands or talk about God sitting. So uh, even in the process of explaining how big God is, we're still using metaphors drawn from a human form. Um, And there is a point here. The Bible does teach us that God comes down to us. He speaks baby talk, as Calvin says, and explains himself in a way we can understand. But we must immediately qualify this. We have to add that none of these comparisons are really adequate comparisons. None of them give us a sort of measure or proportion we could use to fathom or comprehend God. And some of the other passages we had in the scripture reading uh, state this same sort of thing. In Acts 14, we, we have uh, these, uh, these people who are amazed at the miracles that Paul and Barnabas do, and, and they come, and they think that they're gods. And what does What did Paul and Barnabas say? We are men of like nature with you, quite literally like passions, a philosophical term that describes the frailty, weakness, and changeableness of human beings. They're saying, we are of like passions with you. God is not of like passions with us. This was perhaps captured best by the bishops who gathered at the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215 uh, AD. I don't agree with everything that happened to that council, but I think this statement is very well put. They said, it is not possible to point out a similarity between the creator and the creature where a greater dissimilarity between them can't be pointed out. So yes, we can point out similarities, but the moment we say that, we have to remember that there's a greater dissimilarity. Whenever we think we found a nifty analogy or metaphor that helps us understand who God is, we have to remember at the same time the limits on those analogies, the great distance there is between my understanding of God 
and who God is in himself. Well, anyway, there's a lot here, enough for much further reflection and many learned books of theology. But for our purposes this morning, it's sufficient if you've gotten a glimpse of the incomparable greatness of God. If this gets too overwhelming to think about, you can always stop and sing, My God is so big. To get you centered on the main point. So that's my first point. Who is this God? And these verses introduce us to some of the majesty of that answer. Second point, who God is not. I mentioned just now this question, who can you compare to God? And I said that it occurred twice. We see it in verse 18, and we see it in verse 25. I think it's quite intentional that these questions are both followed by two descriptions of things you could confuse with God. Uh, first, the first is an idol, and the second is the stars, the heavenly bodies. So first, idols. Verse 19 through 20 gives us this description of the manufacture of idols. An idol, a craftsman cast it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. We are told about the craftsman and the goldsmith who carefully cast the idol in gold and overlay it with silver chains. The beginning of verse 20 is a little difficult, um, mostly because some scholars think the first word in the verse means a poor person, and other scholars think that it's actually a, a special kind of wood. Uh, which puts you in two very different directions. In the first, um, it would be saying that, well, you, for a poor person who can't afford a nice gold idol, they, they have to make do with one that's made out of wood instead. Um, or alternatively, it could be that the craftsman is seeking out this special kind of wood um, to make a base for the idol. Um, either way, though, the, the main point is clear. The craftsman needs to use all his skill to make sure that the idol won't fall over. What a contrast with the true God. He is the unmeasured God who crafts all creation into existence, but this idol is utterly measured by human wisdom. The idol is the result of measuring and shaping by human forges and hammers and chisels and lathes. God endures unchanging on in might and in power, but this idol needs human help to stand up on its own. And we have to always be worried what if I use the wrong kind of wood? What if it rots? What if my idol falls over? You see the point. The makers of idols think they fashion for themselves a likeness of God, but an idol isn't the least bit like God. It's not the creator. It's something created and created by human hands. It's a God that's subject to human control that's dependent on humans who take care of it. Of course, if you'd asked an ancient idol worshiper if the idol was a god, well, they would have said yes, um, but they would not have thought that was all there was to it. They might have also said to you, well, the god isn't just in the idol, that's one manifestation of the god, but the god is also manifested in this star, or the sun, or the moon. And uh, that was, this was no doubt a great temptation for Israel, especially in exile, where they would have been mixing with people who, who worshipped the heavenly bodies and invited them to do the same. That's where this passage goes next in verse 26. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, 
By the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Who created these, is the question. Are the sun and moon and the stars gods on the level with God? Is God merely the greatest among the company of gods, with essentially the same nature? Or perhaps he's one among their number, like various nations saw the sun as kind of the top god. No, God is the creator and they are the creations. Their glory points to his greater might and power. It is because he is strong in power that not one of them is missing. He has numbered them. Notice the stars as well are measured by the creator, and he's measured by no one. God calls them by name. In in the ancient Near East, this idea of calling somebody by name often involves some kind of authority over them. You even find these stories about a god who has a secret name, but then maybe one of the other gods or goddesses finds out what it is, and then they can manipulate that god. Um, It's actually a little bit like, you know, when you're up to no good on the playground, and one of your parents uses your full name, James Cameron Duggard. That's never a good sign, is it? When they use your full name, it means you're in trouble. Well, so God, God calls the stars by name. He knows their full name. They're at his beck and call, and they better obey him. So while you might think that the sun or the stars would be a much better God candidate than, than a little constructed idol, even these cannot really be compared with God. Just like the idols, they too are merely creations, not at all on the same level with the creator. So that's my second point what God is not. But now my third point, what difference does this make? What difference does this make? You might think you know the answer, but, but be careful here. There's a danger that everything we've learned so far could be misapplied. If you remember my last sermon, I argued that in chapter 40, verse 6, the quotation marks are in the wrong place. And that all of verses in our English translations, there's no quotation marks in the Hebrew, of course, and that all of verses 6 and 7 are an objection from Isaiah about his commissioning for this message. Now, if that interpretation is right, then Isaiah says that all flesh is grass, the Lord blows on them and they wither. Uh, And that sounds a lot like this contrast we have here between, you know, the permanence of God and the frailty of all created things. But where verse 7 ends is, surely the people are grass. In other words, the focus is on the powerlessness, the weakness of God's people. Their disbelief in Isaiah's day, their ultimate judgment and exile from the land, leaves a lot of room for despair. So while this might be formally good theology on some level, it emphasizes God's permanence and the fading nature of creatures, it leaves us in a place of despair at the people's weakness. And this is why I think it qualifies as Isaiah's perhaps objection about being sent by God. He, he thinks maybe he's going to be sent with another oracle of judgment to wither the people even more. And we see, uh, you know, if we, even if we don't move the quotation marks, we see that same despair in the words of the people themselves in verse 12. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? You see, they believe that God has forgotten them, that they are so small that they don't merit his attention. 
But the voice which answers Isaiah takes this in a very different direction. Notice in verses 15 through 17, you know, I've, I've addressed it as kind of a general principle that everything created is like nothing compared to God. But actually, it's a more specific term used. It's the nations which are like dust and like nothing compared to God. It's not just a general statement. It's pointedly directed at the powerful nations of the day, the political powers that run the world. And this comes out in verses 23 and 24 as well, doesn't it? Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. Notice that it's the princes and the rulers that are mentioned here. This passage doesn't just describe the fact that they are like nothing compared to God. It actually goes farther and and says that God makes them like nothing. God actively negates them. And then, and notice the echo to the words from verse 7. We hear about the breath of the Lord blowing on the plants. But here the main point is not that the people of Israel are going to wither and fade away. No, here is the, po- the point is that it's the powerful rulers of the earth who are going to wither and fade away. God's sovereign negation of his creatures is said to be especially directed against the strong and powerful. We're already getting a hint into what we're going to learn more about in the rest of the book, that God is the sovereign Lord of history, and as nations and kingdoms rise and fall, his secret plan is behind it. Actually, we should consider another interpretation of the second half of verse 13 in this connection. The ESV says, what man shows him his counsel, which is a very possible translation, but if we connect the words up slightly differently, another translation we could give is, who will inform him about the man of his counsel? And the reason that's significant is we find the words, the man of his counsel, again, same words in chapter 4611, and in, chapter, in 4611, the man of his counsel is Cyrus, this king God's going to raise up to free his people. So man of his counsel, or maybe man of his plan, you know, the man that God has planned in his will to raise up. So maybe the point of the verse isn't so much who can counsel God. We certainly have that in the other verses if it's not here. But maybe the point of this verse is who can tell God who he should raise up as a ruler? Either way, the point is that God is sovereign. All these great rulers and nations are actually nothing compared to him. Don't be so focused on God's people being nothing, Isaiah, that you forget that the great and powerful enemies who oppress them are also nothing. But there's another side to this as well. Israel is not just any weak people. They are the one to whom God has revealed himself. In verse 21, God says, Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? And in verse 28, have you not known? Have you not heard? I think this language partially includes seeing creation and evidence of God's God's, uh, attributes there, but I think it includes more of it, more than that. The being told from the beginning reminds Israel that God has told them about himself. But Israel is in this place where they're not hearing it, and they're not understanding it. They're forgetting about God, and they need to be reminded. 
not just of God's greatness, but also of his faithful commitment to them. And this, this comes out most clear, clearly in the last few verses, this climax of this passage, right? He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. In verse 28, we learn that God does not grow faint or weary. But now in verse 29, we learn that he gives power to the faint and strength to the one who has no might. Yes, all flesh may be grass, Isaiah. The people may be grass. But God does not simply blow on them and blow them all away. Rather, he may give them his strength. This strength that God gives actually outstrips all natural forms of strength. Uh, Verse 30 reminds us even strong young men grow weary and faint at some point. Think of the greatest athletes you know. I won't try to name anybody. My sports knowledge is too abysmal. I, you just end up making fun of me. But maybe, maybe ask your parents about great athletes and, and they, can, they can tell you. Um, what, why do we like watching great athletes? I mean, not me, but regular people. It's, it's, it's because of the amazing things that they can do. Their strength, their might. But we all know that even great athletes, they have a limit they can be pushed to. And... We all know that at some point that career ends and they get too old to go on. But uh, that's not how it is with God's strength. Those who wait on the Lord, and waiting means depending on and patiently expecting God to act, those who wait on the Lord, their strength is miraculously renewed uh, and it's like they grow wings as if they could fly like eagles and run forever without getting weary. This is an important contrast between natural strength and the strength that God gives freely by grace. It's so easy for us to admire natural strength, isn't it? Uh, Maybe that's a great athlete. Maybe it's an inspiring CEO like Steve Jobs or Elon Musk. Maybe it's a successful politician, at least the ones you agree with. The world has no shortage of respect for, for these people. But it's not so with God. Such people are like nothing to him. And in his time, he even humbles them and makes them like nothing. The ones that he gives his strength to are the weak, the lowly, the despised of the world. They aren't the ones with great reserves of energy coming out of their own resources. Rather, they're the ones who depend and trust on God for each day's strength. Our passage says that God gives these people supernaturally above and beyond the most, natural, the most naturally powerful people that there are. I think maybe this is where some of that image and likeness of God comes in. You see, it makes a very big difference whether you think that the image being like God or compared to God is something you can grasp by your efforts. That's what the serpent in the garden suggested, right? If you eat this fruit, don't be like God. Didn't work out. What a contrast to be given likeness to God by God's grace. To be given that kind of strength that doesn't grow weary, it can only be a gift. By the way, um, Psalm 113, which we read earlier, you'll notice it makes the same application. It starts out in the beginning with the Lord being high and exalted and not like any other 
uh, other being, and then it goes straight to he raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. Those who heard this message of Isaiah, they were hearing a very different message from the world around them too. If you study religion in the ancient Near East, you may be aware that a lot of it is actually connected to royal propaganda. The gods are on the side of the kings. Uh, Occasionally, you may even see um, a carving of the king, and the king will be carved in some kind of pose, like shooting a bow and arrow. And then above him, they'll have a carving of the god in the same pose. And what's, what's the point of that political propaganda? Well, the king and the god are doing the same thing. They're on the same team. The might and the power of the god are behind the might and the power of the king. So you better watch out if you're going to go against the king. This is part of the ideology that held together the great empires of Assyria, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians. They all had their differences, but all of them claimed that the power that they had in the world was because God was on their side. But the true God gives his people the opposite message. True, he has raised up these empires, absolutely, but not because he sides with the powerful Quite the opposite. He, he directs the affairs of the powerful so that he might show grace on the weak. Of course, politicians have often been happy to co-opt God for their side, but I think we have to give some credit to Abraham Lincoln here. There's this story about him that goes like this. At the close of a scientific convention in Washington, the members called upon the president. One of them said, Mr. President, we trust during this time of trial in which the nation is engaged, God is on our side and will give us victory. The noble Lincoln replied, Sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My great concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. I'm not sure if Lincoln actually said this for sure. It it fits a certain caution you sometimes find in him. But I think it's a recognition of the truth as taught in Isaiah. God can't be identified with our human political structures. He doesn't align with political power, but with weakness. So, God gives strength to the poor and lowly. How do we apply this to ourselves today? And this is really what's crucial. Notice, Isaiah perhaps was misapplying it at the beginning of the passage, and he needed to learn how to apply it better. I I was talking to someone this week, and he was reading Job, and he was reading in Job's friends, and he was like, some of this is just such excellent theology. And yet, at the end of the book, God tells me that Job's friends are all wrong. And I was like, well, yeah, actually, I think The book of Job is in the Bible. God put a whole book in the Bible just about how dangerous good theology is applied badly. I think we have that here as well. And there's a caution for those of us who enjoy theology partially out of an intellectual curiosity about who God is. I'm not just preaching that to you. I'm very much preaching it to myself as well. I think it's a temptation for me. Um. It's possible to have a detailed understanding of the form of a doctrine about the nature and attributes of God and then miss the application to yourself. So how do we apply it? Well, I hope we leave here this morning not just with an accurate knowledge of God's greatness and God's attributes. That's important. But I hope we also leave having heard the good news that God exercises these attributes on our behalf. I hope that as we leave today, we're numbered among this group of people in the passage who hope in God and therefore receive renewed strength from him. 
Where are you with that truth, that application this morning? Well, I can think of a few possibilities. Um, First, some of us will hear this passage, and it will be an offense to our pride and our natural strength and our natural ability. We'll be too captivated with power and might as this world sees them. Fame, status, power, wealth, pleasure. We're putting our hope in these things instead of in God. And so we won't be able to hear the truth about God's incomparable attributes as good news for us unless we humble ourselves and repent of our pride. We need to take to heart the fact that these things of the world are nothing before God, that they're fading and fleeting and temporary, and that the only way to have something truly valuable and lasting is to receive it from God by grace. As Jesus says, we must give up our lives to save them. And so perhaps we need to be rebuked and humbled by this passage, by the contrast between what we value and think is solid and real and lasting and between what God does. On the other other hand, some of us, I think, have a powerful awareness of the greatness of God But Satan has twisted that message so that each attribute of God always turns into bad news for us. Is God great and vast? Well, then I must be too small for him to care about me. He must be disgusted with me as he would be with an insect. By the way, I think we'll see in Isaiah that God actually likes insects. We suspect that deep in his unfathomable knowledge lurks a desire to do us harm in ways we can't understand. That the power of his might is going to be used to blast and destroy us without mercy. In other words, we've grasped our smallness and weakness before the majesty of God, and there is truth in that. But we need to hear again that God has come near to the broken and the downcast. He strengthens them. God's power doesn't destroy the weak but rejuvenates them. His unsearchable wisdom guarantees that he won't forget them. So if you're here this morning and you have put your hope in Christ, not perfectly, but you are trusting in him, then know that God sees that. He knows you. And a broken and contrite spirit he will not despise. Perhaps others of us this morning might come with a very real sense of the power of evil in this world. You felt the injustice in the world this week. So many things, including the the shootings that have happened this week, make you think, it's just too big, it's too much. Don't have any answers for this. Seems like there are deep and dark forces at work in this world that are beyond our human power. Well, guess what? There are. The good news is that all the darkness of the present evil age is nothing compared to God. See, these things can seem so solid, so immovable to us, but the reign of evil is always less solid than it seems. God can give his people the strength to persevere in an unjust world. Finally, In Jesus, we have an even greater demonstration of the truth that all God's attributes are exercised on behalf of those who hope in him. 
Colossians 2.9 says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Have you ever thought about what that means? The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Everything that God is dwells in Christ's human body, in his true humanity. He's true God, and at the same time, true man. What does that mean? It means that we can see the truth about God in all his attributes in Jesus Christ. When we see God incarnate as a poor man without a home, we see that God sides with the meek and the lowly. When we see him say to sinners and tax collectors, your sins are forgiven, we see that God is merciful and forgiving. When we see him filled, we see Jesus filled with compassion over human suffering, weeping at Lazarus' tomb, moved by the affliction of the people he heals, we see God's love revealed in human form. When we see him dying on the cross for us, God with all his attributes is there at that cross as well. Though it is as a human that he dies, for God cannot die, he's at the same time still fully God. God is fully present there. The cross finally puts the lie to the idea that God's greatness means he doesn't care about us. Quite the opposite. God's greatness is displayed in his redemptive activity at the cross, saving us through the suffering and death of Christ. God's strength bringing triumph through weakness, his wisdom, which is folly to the world. In the cross, all of our pride is rebuked when we see the humble form which God has taken upon himself. The kingdoms of this world and all their natural power are undone and overthrown by this sign of the cross. For those of us who know our sin and weakness, though, who've come to that cross with all our imperfection and put our faith in this suffering Savior, the cross proves to us that God, with all his attributes, is for us. Through his death comes a source of new resurrection life, which renews our strength and lifts us on wings like eagles. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we adore your great and majestic attributes you've revealed to us. Your immensity, your wisdom, your power. And Lord, we also praise you that you have revealed these attributes in your Son, Jesus Christ. You have come near. You have saved us that you do care about the meek and the lowly, that you lift them up and give them strength. We pray that you would be with us all this coming week, helping us to remember that truth, burn it deep into our hearts, that we would love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's stand and pray.